everybody. Welcome to Late Last Night. I am Caitlin Nodi. First of all, sorry for... It's Monday, sorry. It should be coming out on Thursday, but I had a crazy week last week and couldn't get to it till now. But anyways, we got an awesome episode today. We've got the cask of Amontillado from Edgar Allan Poe. We've got two original poems and one original short story. It's going to be awesome. Great episode. Again, sorry it's late, but enjoy. Miss Ardsley found six splinters in her thumb. She knew not how they'd come to be embedded there. She'd taken great care, or so she thought, when she cleared out the hedges and watered the lot. Still, there they were when she removed her gloves, six stinging splinters in a wrinkled old thumb. With tiny tweezers, one by one, she worked to pull them free. Splinters one through three let go without ado, as did the following two, but not the sixth. The final shard remained stubbornly fixed. She gouged her old skin like a tunneling rat, till the greedy sixth splinter released her at last. Miss Ardsley laid six splinters across her plate. The hour grew late. The sun had faded. Darkness invaded the corners of the room. She lit a small fire to combat the gloom. Yet despite the late shadows and her thumb's bloody glare, she grinned at her splinters and pulled up a chair. Old age, as some of you all too well know, passes ever so slow, like a wait in line. Often one must pass the time with trivial diversions. Therefore I beg you, do not cast aspersions when I tell you Miss Ardsley invented odd games, like giving each splinter its very own name. The first wee splinter she gave the name Bode, the second one Toadlum, the third Morbid Shore, splinter number four she named Jeeber Fleece, the fifth she named Charity, after her niece. The stubborn sixth splinter that wouldn't come free, that had caused her such pain, this one she named Scree. Drifting through Miss Ardsley was a thought. Why not find a pot and a place in the sun and plant every one? These six little shards might grow into flowers or grass for the yard. Ardsley accomplished it as quick as a wink and placed the wee splinters alongside the sink. Sure enough, they sprouted crimson leaves, none as thick as screes. They grew fast and sleek. The others in a week looked shriveled and bent, completely spent. By week number five, not only had the others died, but had disappeared besides. Only Scree remained and had outgrown the pot. Time to remove him to a roomier spot. Beneath her bedroom window, Miss Ardsley planted Scree. Be pleasant to my tree, said Ardsley with a grin. Play nice with him. Then she went as still as stone. For on the wind, she heard a moan. If you'd left me buried neath your glove, we'd be married now. My one true love, 
Miss Ardsley nestled neatly into bed. That moan roamed through her head, but she laughed it away. I am old and gray, a wizened sage. Imagine me married at my feeble age. But Ardsley tossed and turned all night. While outside the window, Scree grew in height. A scratch on the glass jolted Ardsley awake. Her old body quaked like a feverish child. The wind skittered wildly. A voice declared, My, My darling, darling Ardsley, don't, don't be scared. scared. Take, Take me, me back, back inside, inside your thumb. Yours forever I'll become. Miss Ardsley flew fast on her bony old knees. She fumbled for keys and scrambled outside. Unheard of, she cried. As she unlocked the shed, she grabbed a stout axe and returned to her bed. Don't come near me, Scree, or I'll cut off your limbs. Your leaves I will toss in the composting bin. Just one little kiss, wailed Scree. Take me back. The window cracked. Miss Ardsley gasped. Exploding glass cascaded like rain. Scree's clotted branches could not be contained. They reached through the window for a loving embrace. Miss Ardsley collapsed in a tumble of lace. The following morning rose golden and warm. The threatening storm had withered away. A glorious day, it came time for tea. A friend of Miss Ardsley arrived around three. She screamed when she found her old friend's house a sight. Thick hungry vines had emerged overnight. They clogged every window, every door. They grew through the floor, up the stairs, as profuse as the air. Not a wall stood uncovered. No trace of Miss Ardsley was ever discovered. Yet some thought they saw her through storm-darkened skies, tending the vines, a man by her side. The Splintering of Ardsley by Adam Stockman Narrated by Mac and Carroll The dream always starts the same way. I turn to face the only open wall as it eases shut. I hear the click. When I first started having the dream, was I a boy? Not much happened inside the box, but soon I learned a kind of lucidity. I would fall back down onto downy pillows and gaze above me at some shape-shifting work of art, or I'd fall into a warm bath the size of a small pool, total engulfment and total safety. Last night I was being held by something like a womb. It felt the same. This morning, I'm trying to finish the kitchen and start on the living room before work. I called in late. Ellie is coming over tonight, and I don't want her to give me any more shit about my handling the move. Younger women love to poke at the domestic capabilities of older bachelors. Does it make her feel needed? I have so much shit that I don't use. So many objects. It's exhausting, lording over my kingdom of practically unused practicalities. But the new place will be bigger, so there's no point not taking all of it. Empty cabinets are a bachelor's dead giveaway. Easy ammo. Ellie brought takeout last night and we fucked like soul-hungry college kids on a mattress with no bed frame. Only snag was when I tried to tug her by her faux antique key necklace and she freaked out over it. 
girls and their jewelry. I would break any of my earthbound objects for the sake of the play. Dreamt of my box again, which is a bit surprising. Two nights in a row. Getting more frequent than it's been in a while. When was the last time it was like this? I was in a big chair, and there were the beautiful bejeweled hands of women feeding me chocolate and exotic fruits. I never got full. In my dream state, I'm vaguely aware that there is a world that exists outside the box, but it is unclear whether that world is moving through or suspended in time. It doesn't really matter either way. I know the world has forgotten me, has left me just outside the reach of memory. I'm an old melody. Today we are auctioning a series by a German portraitist on androgyny. I've always found the queer side of the art world to be a bit shallow, a bit stretched thin, as if the depth of rhetoric acts as a kind of movie set facade to cover up the uninviting emptiness behind it. I tuned in briefly as the artist's statement quoted Robert Haas, Androgyny is the pull inward, the erotic pull of the other we sense buried in the self. Something to think about, or maybe not if you have actual things to do. Moving day. It's been hot as fuck, the kind of hot that slows down your thoughts. By the time we got all the boxes into the new place, I was hardly able to pose as interior designer. Thank God Ellie was around to point the guys in the right direction. I had just brought out the slats and panels for the bed frame when I got a call from a 713 number saying my delivery was outside awaiting my signature. I was confused, but it didn't seem outside the realm of possibility that this was the ghost of some late night ambienated Amazon shopping come back to haunt me. I asked the woman on the phone if we could push this till tomorrow, but she just laughed softly. I abandoned my project and went outside. The second I saw the package, I knew there had been a mistake. The sheer size of it seemed impossible. It looked like it had been formed by making a cast of the inside of a box truck and then siphoning off the long end to make it even on all sides. I gawked, first at the hulking, wrapped up mass, and then at the delivery guys. They were young Dominican kids, maybe still teenagers. I guess I was anticipating some kind of compassion from them. A confirmation of our shared experience, the kind of bond formed between siblings bearing the abuse of a parent or quarter-life crisisers taking really good ecstasy. But I wasn't getting it. I didn't order this thing, I stuttered. You, Michael Rogan? The biggest one asked detachedly. Yeah, I am. Well, it's in your name. He held out the delivery slip in his left hand, and there was my name and my new address in print. He held out a pen in his right. I don't even know what this is. I don't know how to move it. At this, he surveyed the cloaked giant with big blank eyes, up and down, then up again. And maybe it's expensive. He glanced at their truck, then back at me. I can't say what it was exactly that made me sign for it. The heat does have a way of luring you towards the path of least resistance. It was such a long day, and the very idea of making any more calls to redirect any more boxes seemed physically offensive. Beyond this, though, or maybe behind this, was the quieter hum of a beckoning question. Is it possible? I pushed down the ridiculous thought. It was only logical to conclude that this was some work-related fluke that someone at the auction house had gotten my personal address instead of the warehouse address. Nothing supernatural, just the pervasive normalcy of incompetence. 
Ellie came outside looking perplexed, so I gave her the rundown. I told her the box would be gone soon enough, but she didn't seem to need reassurance. She was ultimately unbothered and calm, which somehow made me less so. She suggested we have the boys help us move the package to the backyard for the night, as there was no way it was fitting through the front door, just to be safe. They agreed immediately, despite the Sisyphean nature of the task. We were able to get the thing through the narrow plot of grass at the side of the house and into the back with Ellie calling out her directions like a coxswain, wrapping her body and voice around the corner porch banister. The boys listened to her with a kind of reverence. I watched their eyes follow her intently before they loped off into the night. Too exhausted to think more of it right now. Ellie wanted to have sex on the frameless mattress again, but I was too tired. Sometimes she'll look at me with either disgust or fascination. How does one distinguish? And say plainly, Who are you? In those moments, she seems so much older. I was in the box in my dream. Ellie was with me, to my recollection for the first time in dream history. She was touching me and it felt so amazing, like when I first met her. Was it different when she was still a student? Am I that much of a stereotype? I got up early to attempt a breakfast of easily located items, cereal with chocolate chips, and to unbox my strange new possession in the daylight. I didn't wake Elle. Pulling off the cardboard colored wrapping paper was an experience of grace. It came off in one piece and with the sound of a whisper, and I stepped back to take in a perfect cube, each surface a deep reflective black. It looked as though it was drinking in the dew. I put my hand to it, cold like marble. Amazing that we were able to carry it, actually. I traced my finger along each edge, and to my excitement, if I'm being honest, it was excitement that rubbed against arousal, I found a small keyhole next to the left-hand corner facing the pines. So you open, I thought. But how, and to what? I put my ear against it, a darkened stillness. Peaceful, almost. I walked back around the side of the house, got in my car, and left for work. At the office, I inquired as to whether there were any expected deliveries that were unaccounted for. I was told there were none. The box again. After the door shut, I turned to see myself sitting in front of a beautiful vanity. It had garlands that were growing faster than real time, curling around the legs and sides of the mirror. I knew exactly where each of my things were in the vanity. No, they weren't things. Treasures. I opened the shallow top right drawer and selected my deep pink lipstick. I began to apply it lovingly. I will look nice tonight, I thought. Suddenly, through the left mirror panel, there's Ellie. She is so large. She looms over my shoulder, looking at me as only she does. Who are you? When I woke up, I wanted to make love to her. I tried to rouse her with my head between her legs, but she was frigid and said I only want sex when it's good for me. I think she felt bad about it later, because she made some excuse about being stressed because of some big upcoming deposition and then fixed me a nice breakfast bowl before she left. I don't think I'm going to work today. It doesn't seem right to have this beautiful, mysterious work of art in my own backyard going unattended while I'm sweating over far less intriguing pieces at the office. I've always been told to follow my passion anyway. My idea is that maybe there is a secret compartment along the edges of the box housing the key that will unlock it. It's crossed my mind that there might be some clue in my dreams, some secret word. Writing this down now makes me almost bashful. 
Why do I insist on living in a fantasy? I know it's wildly irrational, but the more time I spend in the presence of this black box, the more I feel sure it is my box. There's no way I could tell anyone, not even Elle. What if she didn't believe me and had me committed? What if she did believe me and she wanted to take it for herself? No luck finding a key, by the way. My search was interrupted when Ellie came back to my place in the early afternoon. She was in a state. I mean, she really looked awful. She said that she had gotten a call from her sister saying that her mom was doing badly. Bad reaction to the new treatment plan. And it'd be best for her to fly out tonight or tomorrow to be with the family. She was asking me to go with her. I didn't know exactly what to say, still distracted partially. So I just hugged her for a long while and let her cry on me. To be totally honest, I did feel a little repulsed by her excessive display of neediness. I know it's unkind, but at the same time I feel justified in my repulsion. I've told her so many times I hate to be dragged into my own family's affairs, let alone the affairs of others. I told her I was sorry, but I couldn't go with her. I said I was behind on work, and behind on the move, and just behind in life, and I wouldn't be a help to her anyway. I'm no good at those things. She pushed back a little, implying that my priorities were out of whack. I froze when she said I've been making more time for the new box in the yard than I have been for her. What was she getting at? I bought her a plane ticket to Montana for tomorrow, in the early hours, so she'll get to the hospital by breakfast time. I can pay for my own, she said with disdain. I feel horny, but it doesn't seem like she'd be receptive tonight. My bed was in the box and we were lying in it together, Elle and I. I was on top of her, inside of her, kissing her gently on her forehead and eyelids. Then she asked me to hit her. She said it so sweet and soft, and with such even tenderness in her eyes. She was like a baby bird craning for her mother's food. I couldn't disappoint her. I hit her across the face and she exhaled a dagger of air, then quickly beckoned me on with a renewed fire in her eyes. I hit harder. She laughed wildly and pulled me, urging me deeper into the play. In that moment, I understood perfectly what she needed from me. I wrapped both thumbs around her bare throat and cut off her air. When I woke up this morning, she was already gone, though it was still dark out. I didn't know what had woken me, but as I swung myself over the side of my bed to get water, I heard the crying. It was quiet at first, then I recognized it. I grabbed my phone off the bedside table and ran to the yard, nearly slipping on the rug at the bottom of the stairs. Piercing the air like a siren, Ellie's cry was emanating from the box. She was trapped inside. Maybe she had gotten up in the middle of the night to try and get rid of the box and this was her punishment. My immediate instinct was to ram my body against the black marbled surface to pry at the corners. There was no give, no crack to be found in the blackness. Ellie, I cried out desperately. Ellie, are you in there? As soon as the question left my lips, I knew the answer. My body tightened, like a young woman's when a stranger passes her on a solitary night walk. These cries couldn't be Ellie's. The quality of the sound was too perfect. As if it sprung from some unborn and inexhaustible source. It was sickening to hear. I stilled my nerves, took a few steps backwards, and announced, I know that it's not you. And then, from underneath the stabbing sobs, came a second voice, a soft laugh. <laughs> the voices in the box stopped once the sun came up. 
or it could have been before. I called Ellie's phone incessantly, but was unable to reach her. I had worked myself into a frenzy and was ready to go to the police when she finally called back, alarmed by the volume of missed calls and by the voicemails. She had just landed. She was safe. If I was going to tell her about the box, about the dreams, about all the bullshit, it could have been right then. It should have been. Instead, I just told her that I'd freaked out because she didn't wake me to say goodbye. She said she had just guessed it would have agitated me to have been woken so early. She seemed touched. I couldn't bring myself to speak the events of the early morning out loud. And besides, she had a ton on her plate already. By then it seemed like it was all just part of the dream. Regardless, I don't care about finding the key to the box anymore. Really, I just want it gone. I tried to call back the 713 number that called me when it was first delivered here, but the woman on the other end treated me like a crazy person. She kept repeating the same thing over and over. Sorry, we don't have your name in the system. We don't have your name in the system. It was Sorry, like I was talking to an automation. I called her an incompetent bitch, said it was her fault I was dealing with this massive pain in the ass in the first place. I hung up when I heard her begin the familiar refrain. Sorry, we don't have your name. I called back some of the guys who helped me move my other shit into this new house. They brought over a truck big enough to fit it, but when we got ourselves situated around the box's corners, we couldn't move it an inch to save our lives. I feel so drained. I wish Ellie was coming back tonight. I don't want to sleep alone. In my dream, I am looking in the mirror of my beautiful vanity, but I feel so ugly. I am touching my face, and I am feeling the helpless sag of my skin, slipping down into the ashes of all that life has kissed and swiftly forgotten. I turn away because I can't bear to look at myself any longer. And there she is, Ellie, standing in a lake of light, my golden tube of dark pink lipstick cradled in her fingers. Will you let me put it on you? She asks softly. Something about her question enrages me. It's the pity in her voice. How can she think I don't hear it? How can she be so bold as to patronize me this way? In my precious private room. She takes a step forward. Let me do this with you. She puts her left arm on my shoulder and stands behind me, turning me slightly to face the mirror again. I can't take it. I can't take her mocking me this way. Before another word of encouragement is uttered from her, there's a shift in her eyes and she gasps, shallow and grasping. She choked. There's pleading in her tightened voice, in her watering eyes. That is when I see the thumb imprints on her throat. My hands aren't there, but I know that I'm the one doing this to her, and I know that I'm not going to stop. I arose from the dream in a cold sweat. In the pre-dawn stillness, the sound of the thumping was stark and overwhelming. I knew immediately what it was. The incessant and desperate thud of a body throwing itself against the inside of the box. I looked at my hands, at the clock. Is this still a dream? I reminded myself that Ellie is safe with her family in Montana. But what if? For the second time, I staggered out to the backyard, but as I walked into the clearing of the pines and saw the black box towering taller than ever, all fell into silence. One side was unhinged. The door was ajar. I didn't weigh my options. I was falling towards the box like some would say they have fallen in love, propelled by a will so strong it had taken on a life of its own. It crossed my mind that on the other side of the black door may lie Ellie's body, drayed and damning. It crossed my mind that the other side of the door could hold all I'd ever wanted, all I'd dreamed of, 
a private plot of infinite potentialities. It crossed my mind that it might be both. And what then? All this crossed me, passed through me in the space of a moment. I stepped inside the box. There in the corner stood the beautiful vanity, just as it had been in the dream. Terrible fear, wondrous exultation. On the wooden surface of the vanity was a small jewelry box, and on top of the jewelry box was a note. I walked up and read, What is a dream if you never wake up? Yours forevermore, Elysium. I picked up the small pink box and opened it. Elle's necklace slipped to the floor. The key on the chain glistened as it met the first rays of the day's sun. The dream always starts the same way. I turn to face the only open wall as it eases shut. I hear the click. The Box by Katie Gavin Voiced by Eric Radloff, Caitlin Nody, and Katie Gavin I was caught in the space between consciousness and sleep. A fog. Sound had light and color. Thoughts were slippery. My heart was beating rapidly. It's hard to tell when it started, the dripping. It sounded like raindrops hitting the window pane. That pleasant patter that would send you back to dreamland. But the sound was too near. It wasn't the window. What's dripping? Is it in my head? Bright colors flashed. Thoughts slipped in and out like wispy clouds. The room was cold. The blankets had slipped off. I tried to pull them back, adjust to a comfortable position, but my body felt too heavy to move. My legs were weighted. Maybe I'm still sleeping. I hear dripping. I think about what I'll do today. Groceries, laundry, I should vacuum, mop the floor, call him back. He left a message. He seemed nice. I bet we'd have fun together. It's cold. Something is touching me. My, my feet, it's sliding up my ankle. I'm dreaming, I must be dreaming. It's that edge of consciousness blur. Maybe not. I feel something gripping me. My arm, my thigh. I wanna get up, I'm, I'm ready to shower. The hot water will feel so good. I want to stand in there for an hour let the water wash over me. Maybe I'll go to the mall today. Something's dripping. Must be the sink leaking. I want to get up, get out of this lazy sleep mode. I'm forcing myself up. I can't. I, I can't. My body is so heavy. Did I drink last night? What happened? Am I hungover? No. Maybe. There was wine. At least a bottle. Something is touching me. What is dripping? Where, where am I? Open your eyes! I feel lost. It's slowly moving up my leg. Slowly. I want to swat at it, but my arm feels like a thousand pounds. Who are you? I, I see you over there in the corner. What are you doing? I want to be dreaming. 
I remember going to bed, nothing special. Stared at my phone, I, I called you, imagined some company, it was vivid, imaginary. When did you get here? I don't remember what it said, your message. I saw it. I was imagining your fingers, how I wanted them to be closer. Something is curling around my back. <laughs> Sliding down my spine, I'm sweating, I'm awake. Why the, why the fuck can't I move? This must be a dream, it has to be. It, it might be, it might be real. I see my wall. What is that dripping? What the fuck is that dripping? Why can't I move? But I, I feel, I, I feel it all. The knife is sliding, flesh is peeling slowly. I can see you now, I called you. I told you I was lonely. You came over, I let you in. We talked about movies, scary movies. We were laughing. You told me how you used to get scared, freaked out, watching that shit alone. I said, whatever, that's Hollywood trying to get you. I, I'm, I'm going to bed, I told you, I'll call you. You left. I don't know, I thought you left. I didn't lock the door when you left. Maybe I hoped you'd come back. I hinted, I waited, I drank more wine, the wine you brought. I waited. Stumbled into bed. I didn't lock the door. I, I didn't lock the door. The Fog by Vicki Truka Schmitz. Narrated by Anna Schulze. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled. But the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity, to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmary, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting party-striped dress, 
and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. How? said he. Amontillado, a pipe? Impossible! And in the middle of the carnival! I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado! I have my doubts. Amontillado! And I must satisfy them. Amontillado! As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucrezi. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me. Lucrezi cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet, some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. With him. To your vaults. My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucrezi... I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go nevertheless. The, the cold is merely nothing. Amontillado, you... You have been imposed upon. And as for Lucrezi, he cannot distinguish Amontillado from Sherry. Thus speaking... Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, and putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a roclair closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together upon the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe, he said. It is farther on, said I, but observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned towards me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Nighter, he asked at length. Neither, I replied. <coughs> How long have you had that cough? <coughs> My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It, it is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said, with decision. We will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me, it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill. I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucrezia. Enough! He said. The cough's <laughs> merely nothing. It will not kill me. I, I shall not die of a cough. True. True. I replied. 
and indeed I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should use all proper caution. A draught of this medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle, which I drew from the long row of its fellows that lay upon the mould. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly, while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried that repose around us. And I to your long life. He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lacasit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes, and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the medoc. We had passed through the long walls of piled skeletons with casks and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, <laughs> we will go back ere it is too late. You're come. <clears throat> it is nothing, he said. Let us go on, but, but first another draught of the medoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the motion, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You impossible Mason. A Mason, I replied. A sign, he said. A sign. It is this, I answered, producing from beneath the folds of my roclaire a trowel. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. But let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt, in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt, there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side, the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior crypt 
or recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no special use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roofs of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depths of the recess. Its termination, the feeble light, did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said. Herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucrezia... He is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend as he stepped unsteadily forward while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant, he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other, about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other, a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said. Over the wall, you cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado! ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied, the Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the piles of bones of which I had before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in a great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low moaning cry from the depths of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long, obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibration of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel, and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeau over the mason work threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams bursting suddenly from the throat of the chain form seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated, I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess, but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I re-approached the wall, I replied to the yells of him who clamored, I re-echoed, I aided, I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this 
and the clamoring grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came a, out the niche a low laugh <laughs> that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. A, a very good joke, indeed. An excellent jest. We will have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. <laughs> Via Montiato! Via Montiato. But, but, is it not getting late? W will they not be awaiting us at the palazzo? The, <laughs> the Lady Fortunato and the rest? L let us be gone. Yes, I said. Let us be gone. <laughs> For the love of God, Montresor! Yes, I said, for the love of God. But to these words, I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud, Fortunato! No answer. I called again, Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick. It was the dampness of the catacombs that made it so. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of the bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace, Rakiskat. The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. Voiced by Marcus Hoogsta and John Rockwell. Damn, it's a good ep. Guys, I'm sorry the episode was late. But it's okay. I think we're all gonna make it. <laughs> Alright, we got episode four coming out on Thursday. And then episode five on Halloween. It's coming! Everyone dress up. Tell me what you're gonna be. See you later.